Welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event entrepreneurs about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business using live events. Whether you're running community meetups, conferences, trade shows, IT training, music events, or literally any type of event, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. The podcast is sponsored by Apps Events. We produce over 300 of our own events across the globe every year, from training to conferences, and we're now sharing our expertise to a small group of event professionals. There's a couple of ways we can help you. Firstly, we can run the logistics for your event. We have a whole support team who can handle all the heavy lifting for you. We can help set up your website and agenda, liaise with your speakers, deal with the huge volume of questions you'll get from attendees, we can liaise with venues, and we can come to the event to actually run it for you on the ground. Get in touch with james at appsevents.com and we'll jump on a call to see if we can help. Secondly, I offer one-on-one coaching to help event entrepreneurs grow their events. I want you to get more attendees, produce epic events, make more money, and most importantly, to do it all with no stress. So just email me at dan at appsevents.com and we'll jump on a call. And now, on to the interview. Hello and welcome to the events podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Steve Monnington back on for the third time, I think maybe a record, maybe the most anyone's been on the podcast. So welcome back, Steve. Thank you. I wish it was under more positive circumstances. Yeah, definitely. So um, Steve runs uh, Mayfield Merger Associates. He's uh, involved in buying and selling large events and knows a lot about, um, you know, conferences, uh, events, trade shows, exhibitions in general. So great to have Steve back. We're, We're in the middle of COVID nightmare. Now we're recording this on the 6th of May, uh, 2020. So uh, depending on where you are in the world, there's some some positive signs. But yeah, we're, we're definitely in the middle of the biggest crisis uh, I've, I've ever known. I, I haven't been involved in this industry for that many years, but I'm sure, Steve, it's the biggest biggest uh, crisis or issue you've ever seen with, with the live events industry. Yeah, I mean, it's the only issue in my many years of experience that has actually meant that the entire industry has ground to a halt. It's completely unprecedented. Um, and I think that people's approach to it is differing from company to company simply because nobody really has any previous track record of uh, of this type of, of this type of issue. It's 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 just something that people can't get their heads around. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about the the you know how how this all started. I mean, if you mentioned to start off with like some you've got some thoughts about how you've seen. The sole mergers and acquisitions thing. So, if you want to kick off with that, then we can then we can talk into how how we how this all started when we started hearing about it, and you know what, what how it all got started really, and from our point of view. Uh, I mean, I guess that people started to become aware of this you know, around the end of January, beginning of February, when the news was coming out of out of China, and we were doing we were working on a buy side project for one of the larger organisers, looking at. Um, looking at potential acquisitions in China, and you know the Chinese authorities moved relatively quickly once it was out in the you know once people have become aware of it worldwide to close down to close down the industry in China, and that kind of caught us a little bit on the hop because you ask yourself how can you how can you actually talk to organisers about buying their businesses when those shows are are you know are being cancelled 
Um, and nobody at that stage, I mean, it's well documented what the West felt about uh, what was happening in China and how localised they felt it was. So people obviously continued to run shows until they were told that they couldn't run them. Yep. So throughout uh, throughout the end of throughout February and the beginning of March, people, you know, people were still people were still planning to run to run their events. And it was uh, it was only around the very beginning of March when uh, we started talking about no large scale events that companies had to make a decision before the lockdown was was announced as to whether they would chance it and run their show or whether they would actually pull it and and then you know on in, in terms of uh, then think about the circumstances in which they would they would pull it and um, and either cancel or postpone you know there was there were some organizers who were talking to their exhibitors uh, constantly and there were a number of shows which were actually closed down during build-up so one of my good friends Tom Hetherington uh, who runs the Northern Restaurant and Bar Show at the beginning of March actually pulled his event on the first day of build-up so it's a very stressful it was a very stressful time for the large organizers and some organizers made a decision to go ahead regardless and I think that that backfired on them um, in, in what because, way? because the uh, they had much lower visitor numbers because people were, were were starting to be worried about about going. They had lower, they had a quite a big dropout of exhibitors because people didn't want to travel, didn't want to didn't want to be involved in the events. And actually, I think that those events that went ahead, you know, in those in that first week or so of of, of March significantly damaged their brand value because the exhibitors saw uh, saw it as a cynical attempt to get out of refunding money um, by actually holding the show. So there was a there was that coupled with the fact that the shows were smaller, lots of empty spaces because exhibitors didn't come, relatively quiet because visitors didn't come. So uh, I think those that pulled their events around that time in that grey area talk to their exhibitors one-to-one, push the shows back to September and the fourth quarter, which at the time they felt that that was a safe period, were the ones who got really good you know, reputational uh, upticks from, from, from their industry because they were seen to be putting their uh, community, their exhibitors first. So this... Then, um, so so there was this kind of grey okay. period. period. Yeah. Do these people? I mean, do you? I mean, did did any of these event producers have to still pay for the venue and still pay a lot of these costs? Because obviously, we'll, we'll talk at some point about you know people who the, the kind of financial disaster that you know some people may you know are going to be in. Like, did did any people hmm. get on the hook still to pay for venues and things like that? So uh, obviously, the people who ran the shows did. Um, and the people who didn't run the shows uh, went into discussions with the venues, and the venues, you know, there was not a coordinated approach by venues because uh, you know there are loose associate, there are obviously associations of, of of venues, but this was something which everybody was was reacting to differently, and we have a uh, we have a we created a group of of independent organisers 
uh, a club, if you like, that have or which was scheduled to have meetups. Obviously, we can't now. Uh, called the Event Entrepreneurs Club, and we've got around about 70 members or so. And in those early days, we held calls with, um, we kept the numbers down, so they were more intimate calls of, of uh, calls of six organisers at a time to discuss what was happening at that time. And one of the key uh, discussion points was how different venues were reacting uh, to them financially in terms of um, in, in terms of um, you know contractual issues and whether they were making them pay or not, and there were some venues which were outliers. So most of the venues were playing ball; they were moving people's dates without uh, without any cost implications for that, which then allowed those organisers to say to their exhibitors, "We're postponing the show for six months, and we'll just move the show, and you." You know what you've paid for is is good to go, and you don't have to pay any more money. There were some venues at the time who were trying to stick to the contractual rates and say, if you want to book for the venue in quarter four, then you're going to have to pay again, but we'll give you a ten percent discount, and yeah. that of course caused a lot of problems. And those venues who I don't particularly want to name um, came round because we. They, became, they came under pressure from the independent organisers and from the big organisers when, when people were able to compare and contrast what different venues were doing. And ultimately, I'm pleased to say that, that, that all of the venues saw sense uh, and realised that they couldn't charge people again. And obviously, when the lockdown came and they were forced to cancel the events, then you know they had absolutely no choice but to say, you know, we'll we'll reschedule it for you, and there won't be any there won't be any further costs. And of course, you know, the organizer then has all of the money that they need to pay to the contractors, which are generally paid after the event. Um, so the contractors, you know, have also had to move their um, move everything forward and not take any money now. So you kind of get this this top down issue where everybody is having to defer defer the revenue, if you like, um, and it's causing a lot of issues with a lot of a lot of the independent suppliers and of course the independent um, freelancers and consultants to the industry. You know, there's a whole great network of those who have got you know major cash flow problems. Fortunately then particularly if you consider the uk because i can't really talk about what has happened in every country because it's different but in the uk the government then introduced <coughs> sorry the government then introduced the furlough scheme which has a, which has given um a lot of people some breathing space by putting their staff um, on hold and the government end up paying you know, a large proportion of their <clears throat> of their of the staff costs, but even in today's press, they're talking about the fact that that can't last forever, and they're going to start changing that to encourage people to um, to get back to work. But our industry, I think, <clears throat> is going to be the one of the last to get back to work. So you know, we've still got these um, severe financial impacts around us, and will have for some time. Yeah, I mean, oh, obviously, you mentioned the financial aspects. Obviously, the event producers, the suppliers, obviously, the, the, 
the, the owners of the venues, everybody. Have you, do you think, I mean, we'll, talk, we'll get on to later about the future, but do you think there's going to be people that, that don't make it and just look for another line of business? And or, or, are you already seeing it? Or do you, do you think most, most or all are going are gonna to make it through and keep running their events? I mean, what, how, how do you see it like at this point? Um, so if you take the organizers first, um, there are some organizers who um, have probably expanded. I mean, if you talk about the, if you talk about the big guys, um, people like Informer, um, you know, they've, they've, uh, they announced quite early on a rights issue um, to raise a billion pounds to offset part of this. And there's been speculation that some of the other big organizers are doing the same. So those publicly quoted companies are able to go to the market yeah. and get their investors to give them cash. The independents, the smaller independents, obviously don't have that resource. Most of them have, that we talked to have told me that, you know, even if they don't run any events this year, they will be, they will be okay. And what, most of them are doing when they've got events which lend themselves to digital elements is that they've increased that they're doing they're doing a lot of online seminars they're getting sponsorship for those because there is still quite a lot of money around and the revenue from that is covering their cost base so you know they're not going to make the profit that they would make if they were holding a physical event but what they're doing has enabled them to cover off cover off their overheads to survive this year, you know, uh, or until they can run their next show. I think the the two tricky areas uh, for organizers, if we talk about uh, about about them first is yeah. so um, so some of the early stage organizers have got who are who were in their growth phase and haven't really got the cash flow from the past behind them to provide any kind of buffer are in trouble right now. And, you know, there are a number of discussions going on uh, trying to get people to invest in those businesses, which is difficult for people to do at the moment while things are so unclear. So I do expect uh, some of those to not survive. I think organisers of pub large public events, consumer shows, have got major difficulties because their shows don't lend themselves as well to uh, the digital presence and therefore the money that comes from that. Uh, you know, they're not, they, whereas the trade show organizers who were gonna run shows in the first half of the year have collected money from the exhibitors, which they then held over until next year the consumer show organizers don't have that buffer because a lot of their income comes from ticket sales. So I would expect some of the consumer show organizers not to survive. And then it becomes a question for the, for the, for the trade show organizers of how long this is going to go on and when they're going to be able to start to run events. And obviously the longer it goes on, the more susceptible some of these people are going to be to uh, cash flow issues and, you know, and ultimate closure. So I do expect, I don't expect to see everybody survive, unfortunately, which is, which is one of the most painful parts of this when you, as, as you look at it. What I do expect to see when we've got more visibility about events starting to take place, I expect to see a quite an uptick 
in uh, people partnering, independents partnering with larger organisers in a kind of joint venture way uh, to get some security. In terms of the uh, mergers and acquisition processes, as you mentioned, that's our core business. Uh, and for all of the uh, businesses where we were working on selling, um, those were just all put on hold yeah. by the... Um, uh, uh, what was interesting is that the major organisers who were buying these businesses didn't say that they were pulling out. They just said they, they needed to put them on ice until, uh, you know, until things were clearer. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're going to get we're going to get uh, a reasonable amount of fallout. But if we can get events away sooner rather than later, most of the independents that we talk to will survive. Yeah, there's a few things to talk about there. The first one is is virtual events. Now, if we take us, you know, we're in a, in a smaller end of the market. We're mostly running training events and uh, conference style events. And what we found for the online is um, we've had some success doing our training. You know, we do some certification training and, and, and courses, and they're going well online. We haven't tried to replicate the conferences online, and I'm I'm still not sure. You know, conferences, exhibitions, how. I mean, obviously, people are doing it, and, and, and it's a good way to get some income. I, I'm kind of skeptical from the point of view of if, you know, if someone's going to sit at home for a weekend in front of a computer, interacting with, with sessions and, and networking. I think there may be some aspects of it, but I, I'm, I'm not sure if this is like a, if this is going to be, if this is going to be something that survives this, this COVID period and becomes a regular thing, or if this is just people are trying anything to get by. I'm curious what you think of it, because I'm sure there's something there, but I'm, I'm very skeptical of this as, as being a big thing. So I, don't, I, I would agree with you. Uh, I don't think that you know, anybody is attempting to run a virtual exhibition. Um, the, you know, the virtual exhibitions have been around, or people trying to do them have been around in one form or another for, for many, many years, and they've never gained traction. And I don't think that they will gain particular traction now. Um, what people are doing, though, is is forming, uh, is is running webinars, um, which you know they're not saying right. You know, normally I would, we would be holding this event in the first week of May, and therefore you know we're having the event online. Um, what they're doing is saying we're running a series of webinars. We've got the speakers who we normally have at our event. We're going to we're going to run this. We're getting some, uh, and then going out and getting sponsorship for it. And the number of people who attend these events, because they've got time, because they're at home, because um, they need to learn in the absence of actually having any any events um, per se, they are uh, the, the numbers attending these is actually. In, uh, surprisingly large and allows these companies, allows the organisers to sell sponsorship around them. Right. So it's, and it's not going to, it's not going to replace the exhibition. And as I said earlier, it's not going to, it's not going to create the same amount of income, but it is a way to cover off overheads. Um, and we've got, you know, there's some interesting stories. We, we have a client who run um, investor meets investment events um, in the mining sector. And they've been, you know, these kind of one-to-one -one type events in particular lend themselves towards the virtual, the virtual yes. format. 
So, you know, whereas you've got the big trade show organizers running webinars and stuff, which are sponsorship, um, which is you know, and getting sponsorship in, the people who are running one-to-one events can actually do that um, online. And what they're finding is that people that they found really difficult to get into their physical events are actually coming to these, uh, these virtual events realizing how good they are and how good the investment leads are and then talking about coming into the physical events when they when they when they restart so you know it's nice it's nice to see some some unexpected wins in this um but there is a lot of money around uh and there is a lot of thirst for information and for investment leads so different different events will get better traction online than 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 others but I agree with you. This is not this is not going to herald the the rebirth of the virtual event uh, at the at the um, at the demise of the of the big trade shows. Yeah, what, what uh, very interesting. What um, so what's your obviously if we had a crystal ball, it would be great. But like we're talking about the near future, so we so now you know the summer's kind of out of a question. I guess we're talking about autumn or fall if you're american 2020 winter you know early 2021 like um i mean this is a real this is like this is not a a theoretical thing it's a real life issue for me i've got potential events i'm going to be running you know it seems to me certain big events have just canceled they just said there's no point taking a risk we'll get out ahead of it and a lot of smaller and medium ones that like me are kind of going ahead and hoping for the best like is that is that how you've seen it or what do you think is is the pattern and, and what's going to happen so the pattern, obviously, the starting point back in March, people cancelled all of their events from the first for the first half of the year uh, and pushed them back into the second half of the year. That was what was generally happening. Some people made the decision just to skip this year and yep. hold the event next year. The vast majority pushed them back. And of course, that created a lot of problems with the venues because, you know, it's really hard for the venues to free up enough slots for all of the shows in the that should take place in the first half of the year into the second half along with all the events that are scheduled for the second half anyway and the other issue that people who were uh, that everybody had as a result of that was increased competition so events which were competitive or are competitive but which are separated by six months in the calendar, one taking place in in March, another taking place in October, suddenly find themselves um, within a week of each other. And so that's that's the first problem. The second problem, of course, is that the exhibitors don't have either the resources or the marketing budgets to support all of the events um, that they would normally support across a year. Um, you know, it's concertinaed into a two or three month period. But those that have already paid for the first half of the year shows and, you know, they're, they're then carrying that money over to the second half are faced with difficult issues as to which events can they afford to do, which events can they actually do from a resource point of view. So that was the starting point. It was a big mess. Um, then there was a realization that events uh, in the second half of the year might not happen. Um, and that's kind of the dawning, slow realization, which is going on right now, the beginning of May, as we speak. Um, and obviously, people that had events in June have, have, 
have pushed them back. But people who have events in September are starting to make the decision that it's actually too stressful to continue to think about holding all your exhibitors together, particularly if you've if you've managed to get them to a point of accepting a postponed show from March into September, as we as we see a few people have done. Now, what do you do? How long do you wait until you move that show from September and actually say, you know what, we're not going to run a show at all. We're going to run it in March next year. Because that raises another point, which is when does a postponement become a cancellation? Because, you know, you can't really postpone an event for 12 months or, and call it a postponement. Um, and the whole issue of refunds to exhibitors is completely different whether based on whether it's a postponed event or a cancellation you know, yep. then the terms the, all the terms of trade kick in so people have been reluctant to think about moving their postponed event from quarter four into 2000 and um into 2021 because uh, it becomes a cancellation so i think that if you if we try and use a crystal ball I don't see any big events happening this year. Um, I think that until we have a vaccine, um, it's going to be very difficult to run a successful event. You know, science says that if you get, you know, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 people in an exhibition hall, then you're going to get, um, you're going to get the next wave of, um, of um, coronavirus. Yeah. Um, you know, the, so, I did read this morning uh, on LinkedIn that Connect, um, which is a business which Tarsus acquired a couple of years ago, which is one-to-one events, um, have said that their event in August is definitely going ahead and that they are um, implementing social distancing, which is something you can do for one-to-one events, you know, either the investor meet investment or the buyer meet seller type forums you can actually use that format quite well. But for the rest of the people running big shows, I just don't see anything happening this year. And I think that most of the organizers are starting to come to terms with that. And privately, the big organizers have been budgeting or forecasting for cash flow purposes on the basis of no, no, no events this year and smaller events next year. Is there is there a potential issue with just because of the bigger effects on this, of people just not traveling as much in, I mean, for, for quite a while, I mean, maybe even several years, if you look at things like the, the mess the airlines are in, I mean, so many flights are going to get canceled. I mean, for example, like I live in Prague, um, that they've already said, I think there's, there's two airlines flight of the U S from here, like Delta and American. They both said, no, there won't be any flights this year. Maybe, maybe, maybe they won't restart them. You know, they, they may be just less, Flights generally less less airlines in existence. Do you do you think that's that's a risk? But there's just is going to be people just don't travel as much for, for quite a while. Massively, yeah, absolutely. So events which are really international are the ones which are going to struggle. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I was talking to one of my former clients. We sold their business about four or five years ago, and they're still involved in it. And they were talking about you know running their show in October. Um, and they get visitors from 121 countries. 
uh, you know, it's, pre it's predominantly domestic exhibitors, but it's a massive international buying community. And we were just discussing how can they possibly run that show um, when people aren't traveling? Um, so yeah, I think that if we get exhibitions, you know, the, the, the first thing is when can you actually run a show? When are governments going to allow you to run a show? Because you, know, you talk about sporting events being held behind closed doors, which is fine. You know, you can do that. You can't run an exhibition behind closed doors, obviously. Sure. And, social di and social distancing of big exhibitions and maybe doing what the supermarkets do and allowing a certain number of people in and people having time slots to, to visit is probably the way that a lot of events will go, which will make them smaller. Um, in, and, you know, having to have wider gangways um, to enforce social distancing will will mean fewer exhibitors it will mean fewer visitors so I, I i think that even for domestic events you're going to see quite a different type of event in 2021 than we saw in 2019 for those which rely on international exhibitors or visitors you're absolutely right people just aren't going to travel it's going to be too hard to travel and you know who knows when the airlines are going to you know, are going to start back in um, uh, at the sort of levels that they were at three, four months ago. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the optimistic viewpoint is that, uh, I mean, already like in Austria, they're already starting to have a system where they can potentially test people immediately on arrival or, you know, you, you get a test valid over the last few days and that means you don't have to quarantine. I mean, you know, it may be that there's solutions that we don't know yet that get implemented pretty quick and it gets things moving quicker because you have, you have to think most governments are desperate for, for commerce to, to, to keep going, you know, I mean, I guess, but, I mean, but that's obviously you can't rely on the most optimistic scenario. I mean, the most realistic scenario is, is the one we've, we've been talking about, I think. Well, the, the irony of all of this is actually that, um, you know, everybody's economy has tanked as a result of this. And the, and the single most important thing that could happen to kickstart the economy is having, is having the trade shows. So there's a kind of an irony in the fact that trade shows will probably be prevented from taking place because of the large number of people in a small indoor space, just at a time when you actually need them to, to counter the negative effects of, the, um, of, of, uh, of what's happening with the economy as a result of all of this. Definitely. Do, do you think um, there's going to be a lot of like, a very overused term, a new normal, a lot of new normals in terms of events, a lot of temperature checking, a lot of uh, other kind of restrictions, face masks, maybe. Do you think these are things that are going to become more common generally? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's really interesting is that, you know, people talk about, uh, in Europe, talk about, you know, wearing face masks. If you, you know, I spent a lot of time working in China. I'm quite used to going into an airport and coming out of an airport uh, and going through a temperature check sure. um, and having people with, with face masks on, with a, with a computer, just checking everybody as they come through. And it's absolutely normal and has been for years. Um, and, you know, you walk along the streets and particularly after, you know, after SARS and so on over, over in Asia, the number of people wearing face masks, you know, generally is... is um, is quite high, so I think that I think that it will become the new normal, and it has been, it has been normal for 
a number of years in uh, particularly in Asian countries. And I just think that, that everybody else is going to have to adopt it. I mean, it, you know, the technology is there. It's very easy to use. And, and um, you know, we're talking about um, um, blood tests and so on. That's the tricky bit because a temperature check for the, you know, normally, you know, do, do you have a fever? Yes. Um, you know, you get pulled over and, and then the next thing um, in, in terms of deciding what to do with that person happens. But here it's with COVID-19, it's a lot more complex um, than just taking a temperature. So I think that, you know, we talk about travel and people having to allow four hours to do a blood test and fill in a fill in a, um, you know, a medical history and all of that kind of stuff. I think that will become that will become the new normal. And I think it will stop people. It will stop a lot of people from traveling. Um, whether in five years time we'll be we'll just have shaken all of this off and we'll be getting on with our lives as we did before. I, it depends on how quickly we get a vaccine and how effective it is. Um, but that's the only way that, that, that the new normal will be the same as the old normal. Yeah. One thing you mentioned before we started um, recording is about um, a lot of large venues for exhibitions have, have been used as hospitals and stuff and, and, and some issues around that. So do you, do you want to talk quickly about that? So, um, yeah, there was a, I mean, in, in the UK, um, venues like Excel, the NEC, Manchester Central, um, all agreed to hand over their space to become um, hospitals to take the um, to take uh, some of the weight off the National Health Service and the um, and the ICU units um, in the hospitals, um, and uh, that was mirrored in other countries. So venues, big venues in Germany, were doing the same thing. I think one in. Um, uh, in Malaysia did the same thing. So um, one of the issues, and I can't speak for other countries, but particularly in the UK, is there is not a lot of clarity from the government about what will happen uh, longer term with those. Clearly, all of, this, all of the statistics say that they've hardly been used um, because the lockdown has meant that the health, uh, health service has not been overrun. So if you take Excel, they've only got something like 40, uh, 40 patients at a time when they've actually got room for, you know, several thousand. Um, but the it, it's not uh, so. So there is a there is a bit of uncertainty about what will happen um, and whether the government will comply with the deals that they uh, agreed to at the start, which was basically um, uh, they had they had use of the venues for two months. They had an option to then roll over for another two months, and then after that they had to vacate and everything had to be deep cleaned, and then people could start running events in September. That was the kind of timetable. But you see in the press the idea that maybe with all of the cancelled um, procedures, uh, non-COVID related um, uh, procedures that have been that, that millions that have had to be cancelled operations um, that maybe these venues can play a part in taking some of the strain to get everything back to normal there which 
the exhibition industry is looking in horror at. Um, the, and it's not just as simple as saying, uh, okay, uh, let's, uh, let's take the venue back, let's deep clean it and let's get back to, um, let's get back to running exhibitions. There are million, there have been millions of pounds spent on, uh, on the installations uh, uh, to deliver uh, oxygen. Um, all of those, all of those millions of pounds of tubing is going to have to be dismantled and dealt with. So you're not going to want to be going in, out, in, out. So that's that's the problem with the venues that it 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 costs it costs quite a lot of money to set them up as hospitals. It'll also cost quite a lot of money to decommission them as hospitals. Um, so it's not just a straightforward decision saying, okay, you can run your shows in September, but if we have a second surge because um, the lockdown was was um, was was too, the release of the lockdown was too sudden, so we want it back as a hospital. It's not that isn't the sort of thing that can just happen overnight. So it's just it's just another added complication to um, what is already a very, very difficult scenario for everybody. Sure. Um, Steve, really interesting chat as always. Um, I guess to end it on a positive note, I guess we both see that, you know, there is going to be an end to this, you know, and obviously, especially people who are maybe just starting, you know, it's obviously probably the worst time in history, but it is going to end, you know, there is going to be live events and, and you know, in a few years, you know, we'll look back on this time as just, you know, you know, a, a tragedy, but, but things are now normal, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think logic tells you that that's the case, but this, you know, this came out of nowhere. Yeah. We just don't know what is going to happen next. And as I say, the absolute key thing here is not lockdown, release of lockdown, strategies for releasing lockdown. It's actually a, it's actually a vaccine. Because yeah. unless, until, unless and until you get a, an effective vaccine, this is always going to be around us and there's always going to have to be social distancing, which will then affect our industry more than most. For sure. Steve, uh, thanks, thanks very much uh, to talk. We'll definitely catch up again, I'm, I'm sure, soon and, and have some updates. How can people get in touch with you if they need to? Um, so um, we've, got, we've got a lot of information to uh, which we share uh, on a regular basis, um, we have created the Event Entrepreneurs Club, and we have a dedicated email address, which is eeclub at mayfieldmerger.com. Um, and people can contact us there. We're about to put out a document which UFI, the Global Association, published yesterday for you know steps. Um, for the re-establishment of the exhibition industry. So as and when we get useful information, we disseminate it through the club and we are always available to talk one-to-one with people to share our experiences because we talk, to, we talk to all of the major players, we talk to all of the independents and what we encourage through the club is, is the sharing of experiences and information so um, people can get in touch with us through eeclub at mayfieldmerger.com. Great. Steve, pleasure to chat. Um, thanks for your time and best of luck with your business and uh, to everyone you work with. Thank you and you too. Speak to you soon.